мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I hope 2017 is treating everyone well thus far. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. A lot of discussion about present-day Russia focuses on the prevalence of corruption, bribery, and kickbacks. Many analysts argue that corruption defines the nature of the Russian state as much as it is an irritant of everyday life. Corruption in Russia also serves as a means to grease the wheels of a rather rusted bureaucracy. Corruption is as much a tonic to the system as it is a poison. But what about the history of corruption in Russia? What role did it play in particular historical periods, like the late Stalin period? How was it practiced? What was the art of the bribe? I turn to James Heitzen for some answers. James Heitzen is a professor of history at Rowan University, where he specializes in modern Russian history. His new book is The Art of the Bribe, Corruption Under Stalin, 1943-1953, published by Yale University Press. Here's James Heitzen. I thought I'd start our conversation by having you talk about how you came to this project because your previous work dealt with agriculture and the peasantry in the 1920s. So how did you come to study bribery and corruption in the late Stalin period? Yeah, my, my first book, which is called Inventing the Soviet Countryside, was really about how the state tried to deal with the peasantry after 1917. So it was really a study in a revolutionary state and political culture of that state, trying to deal with this gigantic challenge of modernizing in a socialist way the vast majority of the population. And I was really interested in the intricacies of how the state dealt with these massive social and cultural problems. And sort of like the current project, I really looked closely at how the Soviet state was really working, uh, sort of beneath the ideology, beneath the myths of unity between state and people. So I looked at the complications of state officials' interactions with peasantry and how they, they had this mission to transform the peasantry completely, to turn them from little capitalist small communal farmers into some kind of larger communal collective mass. And this was a very complicated revolutionary mission. So this is what my first book was about. And this study also has to deal with some of the complications and intricacies of the of the mission of the, of the revolutionary state, this time under Stalin. So how did I get interested in this particular topic? You know, I was a college student in Moscow way back in Soviet days in the 19, early 1980s. I, was a, I spent a semester abroad in Moscow, like a lot of people in my field. And at that time, I saw my Russian acquaintances talking about how to get things done in Russia, how people really got things done about having to pay to do things that were supposed to be legal, about making friends or developing relationships with, with people in a position to do something for them, to get access to something, to get out of some onerous task, to get a new job. And in some ways, I mean, often they would talk about paying people. I was really surprised because my impression of the Soviet Union when I went over there was that it was, it was this big, bad totalitarian state. 
where people would be afraid of doing these things. But in some ways, bribery was really the quintessential crime of the late Soviet period. So that was my first exposure. So I was in my low 20s at that time. And then I was, I went to graduate school in Russian history, and I went to Moscow in 1991-1992 for my IREX year, which was a really amazing year to be there. The Soviet Union had just collapsed. And, you know, again, this was a post-Soviet state. It was the first months of a state that was in the midst of a revolution. So I was in the archives studying revolution, and on the streets, a revolution was going on as well, sort of in slow motion, a different kind of revolution, but a revolution to be sure. And in the spring of 1992, I was actually mugged by a group of children. Uh, they were Roma children, and they took my wallet. And I went to the police station, and I complained to the police officer. And he had me come into his office. He was very nice. He was very friendly. He, he gave me some tea. He gave me some cookies. And then he asked me for a bribe. And he told me that in order for the case to go forward in any way, a number of bribes would have to be paid you know, fees, gifts to the, to the prosecutors, to the police, and to the judge. And what, was, what struck me was how open he was about this, how, how casual this conversation was. And it made me very interested in a very personal way about these deals between citizens and officials. He also told me that I should buy a club. And then next time I saw gypsy children, I should just beat the crap out of them with my club. But... Uh, <laughs> And he approvingly cited what Hitler had done with the gypsies and so on. So it was very, it was very yeah, lovely conversation. But I wanted to, um, I think that planted the seed of, of looking into what I understood were important relationships between ordinary people and officialdom in order to get things done in this very complicated system. And I decided to look at this question in in the sort of darkest era of Soviet history, which to my way of thinking was the late Stalinist period. That is the period after World War II until Stalin dies in 1953. I say dark in part because it's the, at that time it was the period that I would say the least research had been done on this era. The, there are almost no pub public sources, almost no published sources on the period. A few memoirs, the newspapers are very closed and very censored and very sort of any stories about corruption are, are these kind of individual bad apple stories about the occasional guy in Irkutsk who took a bribe. But I was interested in how people dealt with this question when the risk was the greatest. And what the archive showed me was that, in fact, there was a lot of dealing and negotiating, even when the danger was very high in, an, in a repressive regime. And I came across some really interesting legal materials, which is where I, I found my best stuff, the sort of fascinating studies by the procuracy of bribery, as well as some court cases that were very rare. It's very, very, very rare to find transcribed court cases in any of the Soviet period, but I was able to find some. And these showed me some really interesting detail about the mechanism and the culture and the social practice of bribery in the late Stalin period. Yeah, the, the the culture of it and the practices is what's really fascinating about this study. I mean, one of the many components that's fascinating. But but first, let's put the issue of, of bribery in uh, in a larger historical context in Russia, because as as you know and as you state, gift giving and bribery and corruption have a long history in Russia. 
So why don't you give a brief history of what these are and their place and how they're understood in Russian society in a long historical context? I think that most of us are familiar with kind of the classics of Russian literature and Gogol and Dostoevsky and and a number of others. Herzen was very interested in bribery. All wrote sort of really fantastic, beautiful, and many times, you know, hilarious accounts of the bribe-taking Russian bureaucrat. And the Russian intelligentsia from left to right, the revolutionary intelligentsia, the literary intelligentsia, all hated Russian officialdom. And they all depicted it as extremely venal and with the broad strokes of the stereotypical corrupt official that we understand that's passed down to us mostly comes from the masterworks of Russian literature. Russia, Russia was an undergoverned country where it was very difficult for the government to keep tabs on its own officials. Russian officials were often not very well educated, not very well trained, with not a very poor sort of professional ethos. Richard Wartman wrote his wonderful book about the development of a Russian legal consciousness. And, but he does show that very often people had not really internalized ideas about the rule of law or about conflict of interest. This was true not only in Russia, of course. I don't want to give the impression that Russia was the only corrupt country in the world. If you look at Britain or the United States in the 19th century, you find these bitter complaints about bribe-taking officials. And so obviously corruption has its place in every kind of system, authoritarian, democratic, socialist, capitalist. But in Russia, the, the officials were also notoriously poorly paid. And the center seemed to be willing to tolerate this. And you do see certain sort of practices and traditions whereby local Russian officialdom would enrich itself on the backs of the local population. So there are two traditions. One is called uh, karmlenia, and karmlenia means feeding or feeding from. And this is a sort of practice whereby local Russian officials would accept gifts or accept payments in exchange for any kind of official acts that they had to do for the for the population. So the peasants would pay them in chickens or in food. Local nobles might pay officials in money or in more expensive gifts. And then there's also this tradition of padnashenia, which is the bringing of gifts. And um, it's, again, these, this is like I call it in my book, I call it a food chain. It's a food chain which goes, extends from the local population up to the top of the bureaucracy. So local bureaucrats would take bribes from the local population and then pass a proportion of that up to their superior. And you would have this pyramiding pattern of the payments of kickbacks going up to the top of the pyramid. And the government, in a way, this was a way of, it's cheaper than paying officials. You just let them sort of earn their own money. In modern times, we see this, I think, most graphically at least for foreigners, we see this with the, the traffic police in Moscow, which is a classic kind of food chain. They take a little bit of bribes from the uh, driving population. Uh, when they pull them over, instead of giving them a ticket, they'll take a thousand rubles or something, and they pay a little bit of this up to their superiors. And the people at the top stand to benefit very handsomely. And often those positions are for sale. People will buy those jobs at the top of bureaucracies. Now, you also state that, and it's interesting, the context in which you're writing your book in, which is the right after World War II, because you state that World War II and its aftermath provided the perfect context for bribery to flourish in the last years of Stalinism. 
why was this such a fertile ground for corruption and bribery? And what types of bribery did people practice? Well, it's obviously Stalin, um, in the Stalin period, their bribery continues. So that in the 1920s and 1930s, there are accusations that officials are taking bribes. And we know that this is true. But people are rarely prosecuted actually for bribery. In the 1930s, almost all crime is made into a political act. So that the official who's committing some kind of abuse of office or enriching themselves through their office is going to be accused not of a white collar crime, but will be accused of a political crime, that this is a treasonous act. And this is a consciously counter-revolutionary act. Now, the purges end in 1938, and fascism is defeated during the war. Trotsky is murdered in 1940. And so after the war, there's, again, sort of more space in the law to accuse people um, and convict people of these crimes like bribery and of crimes by officials, rather than labeling everyone as a political criminal. So World War II really accelerates this process. The war creates incredible devastation. There's also a famine after World War II, and Stalin decides to introduce a new law in June 1947, a new ukaz on the theft of state property. This is mostly directed against peasants who are stealing food from the collective farms. The Soviet economy always suffered from shortages, but the war makes the shortages even worse. And for people to, to get access to food, to get access to apartments, they often had to pay bribes. So in the midst of famine, of course, many people are having to pay bribes to, um, again, get access to short good, goods that are in short supply. Another thing that's in short supply are apartments. So there are hundreds of thousands of apartment buildings that are destroyed during the war. And also when people are evacuated from uh, the western part of the country to the east, they have to leave their apartments behind. And often those apartments are taken over either by squatters or by government agencies. And when people come back, they face this horrible prospect of not being able to get back into their own apartments. Sometimes they'll have to pay a bribe to some sort of local housing agency in order to get back into their apartments. Other times they'll go to court and have to pay bribes in court or be tempted to try to pay a bribe to a judge or to some sort of a prosecutor or someone to help them get their apartments back. So often paying bribes is really a life or death situation. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a question of survival quite often. At the same time, that you have this upsurge in crime as a result of the war. The Stalinist state is also very concerned about reinstating order into the state. So during the war, partly by necessity and partly by design, local state agencies are often given much more leeway than they had been before the war to address in an ad hoc basis and to improvise to deal with the emergency situations that are popping up all over the country whether it's production on the farms and the factories, whether it's issues of transportation on the railroads. So individuals and offices tend to have taken upon themselves a lot more authority locally. Stalin is very concerned about bringing all of those agencies back under bear and reimposing a kind of ideological orthodoxy as well as an organizational orthodoxy. So you have a campaign against bribery. It begins in 1946. 
And there's a lot of concern that um, bribery is getting completely out of control. This campaign is not particularly successful. So another area, and this is an area where I found a lot of documentation, I found it particularly fascinating where you see an upsurge in bribery is in the courts. What I found that happened is that as a result of the very harsh penalties that Stalin institutes after the war for non-political crimes, such as, for example, speculation, which is the profiteering and short goods, and also the theft of state property, you have a mass of non-political cases rushing into the courts. Upwards of two million of these heady political criminal cases go into the courts in between 19... 46 and 1952. And they peak in 1957. For theft of state property, there's a seven-year minimum mandatory sentence, regardless of what is stolen. For example, peasants who steal food out of the collective farms because they're starving during the famine will be given seven years. Or a worker who takes a little bit of wood or some bricks out of the factory, they'll also be charged with theft of state property and get a seven-year minimum sentence. And these cases go into the courts, and then the appeals also go into the courts. And some judges will negotiate to either reduce those sentences or let someone off or even even negotiate to send the convicts to prison camps that are closer to Moscow or closer to the hometown of the person who is convicted. So you see this in the courts as well. And it's a um, it's a really important, I think, after effect of the war. Yeah, this is really uh, interesting because it shows that you have this tradition of, of bribery and corruption in Russia, but there are structural issues of the state that, that open up these like markets for corruption. I mean, that's, that's what I found so fascinating in your discussion of the courts. It's that a lot of the corruption is a result of the fact that there are so many arrests for these petty crimes with the heavy penalties and then the fact that that they're overburdened, the, the actual courts and the police are overburdened with work. Therefore, to move things along, you have to, you end up having to bribe your way to some favorable result. That's right. And another really interesting part of this, um, of the, these corruption markets, and I do, and I do use that word, is the um, existence and sort of flourishing of a class of intermediaries who um, work in these agencies and they're like matchmakers between the officials who can make the decisions and the general population. And petitioners in the courts in particular, will, which is what I write about the most, but they exist in other agencies as well, especially for housing. You have these brokers who will take a cut of the payment and whose services will be well known. Often they're defense lawyers because defense lawyers are in a perfect position. They know, they know many of the judges in their courts and they also have, of course, a close contact with the petitioners who are often very desperate. So intermediaries work to reduce risk. They reduce risk for the petitioners and they reduce risk for the official themselves because they'll, the biggest risk, of course, of any bribery transaction is that one of the parties will turn the other one in. And it's, Otherwise, almost impossible to expose bribery. It's a secret deal between two people done behind closed doors. Usually they never talk about bribes. Often they're disguised in one way or the other. 
as gift transactions or just a kind of friendly interaction of some sort. So the number one risk is that one of the people will turn against the other people, against the other person. And the intermediaries play that role of minimizing that risk because they know both sides. Now, being an intermediary in a bribe is punished by a separate article in the criminal code. So that shows you that it's a quite a common act. It's something that has really never been written about by historians, but I found many examples of it. You also see, uh, and I have a chapter in the book about a judge in Georgia who is accused of taking bribes. And quite often you see the, you see that there are intermediaries involved in the cases where he is accused of taking bribes. And the Georgian judge was the, was the Georgian representative on the Soviet Supreme Court. He served there between 1946 and 1948. And the way that they organized the, the court, the Supreme Court, is that there was a person from every nationality, at least one from each nationality, who would then handle cases from a given republic. So the cases that came from Georgia that were appealed to the Soviet Supreme Court were heard by this Georgian judge. So it's an interesting sort of problem that they've created, which is that there's an Georgian petitioners will come to Moscow and they'll, and they'll come to this judge and they'll say, listen, you're my fellow Georgian. You really, you know, we help each other out. I need you to help me out as a Georgian person. It's really fascinating challenges that it poses for the, for the judge, who is actually an honest judge, and I do not believe took any bribes. But we often see are these, inter, these professional intermediaries who are Georgian, who move between petitioners and the judge himself. I want you to go more into this the bribery as a social relationship, and, and, and a relation that's based on practices of identification, negotiation, and it involves a, a various network of relations. Because as you said, you know, if one person turns on the other, then you know, this is the greatest danger. So what was what you call the art of the bribe in late Stalinism? Normally, when you read about bribery in the scholarly literature, bribery is treated as a crime. So it's something that's of interest to criminologists. It's also of interest to political scientists who are interested in um, client-patron relationships inside states. And these are both extremely important. And I talk about both of these things. When you look at bribery also, you'll see that uh, often corruption is treated as um, like a moral transgression, a sin, and that there's a lot of emphasis on personal character flaws and wire and greed and attempts by states to socialize officials so that they put the state interest or the national interest above their own personal interests. This is also, of course, very important. And certainly in Stalin's time, corruption is talked about as a moral failure. And the party control committee, whose records are at least in part available, calls bribery a moral transgression. They use this language. But when I was reading, I also came to the conclusion that, that we should talk about bribery as a kind of social practice that's highly creative and that corruption in many cases is a creative act and bribery has many creative elements. I call my book The Art of the Bribe because I noticed in my research that many people or that people had to be very, very careful when they entered these deals. Not only the person who is accepting the bribe, but the person who's giving the bribe. 
it was very dangerous to do so. Uh, the penalties in the Stalin period went from two years in prison to 10 years in prison. So what you see is that people use coded language, for example. Uh, the title of one of my chapters is The Word Bribe Was Never Spoken. And that was a judge who said that. And it was a judge in his trial who was confronted by the person who was accused of giving him the, a bribe. And or the bribe giver said, we never talked about bribes. I gave you a gift. And what he had done, what the bribe giver had done was bring children's toys to the judge at his apartment. And his defense was, these were just gifts. These were just friendly gifts. And the judge said, no, they weren't gifts. We both knew that they were not gifts. Nobody uses the language of bribery. They use the language, as he said, of giving gifts, of treating, of entertaining, of friendship. So people use this kind of coded language, and they meet in private places. And one thing that I found is that bribery is most often hidden in this culture of gift giving. It was very rare in the late Stalin period that people passed money. Instead, people passed food or clothing or sometimes jewelry. In the rural areas, it was mostly food. In the urban areas, it was more, uh, it could be clothing, it could be furniture, it could be services, for example, fixing someone's apartment. And Soviet life provided all kinds of opportunities for money and gifts and prizes to change hands legally, it was a small step to incorporate an illegal offering into these exchanges. So you could, for example, if a boss wanted to shake down a bribe from somebody at work, they could play a game of cards and the boss could pretend to win at cards or you could pretend to lose a bet. Or if you wanted to, uh, a boss could give an undeserving employee a prize. And all of these transactions could hide bribes. I saw many cases of these. Um, prosecutors even had a term for this. They called them masked bribes or disguised bribes. The prosecutor's office was actually an excellent source of information about this, what I call art of the bribe. In 1946, there was a campaign against bribery that was led by the prosecutor's office. And, you know, these campaigns, these Soviet campaigns are often very sort of artificial. They become very bureaucratized. They produce all this paper, but very few results. And we see this with the campaigns against corruption in the late Stalin period as well. But for the historian, they're a goldmine because prosecutors and the courts have to produce reports, report after report after report. Most of them are pretty empty, but some of them are very valuable, in fact. And we see that prosecutors were asked to investigate why do certain people take bribes? Why do certain people offer bribes? And how do they hide this activity? Let me ask you, because on the one hand, bribery is categorized in the Soviet discourse as a moral failing. But at the same time, you... You also state in the book that for people who give bribes, it's not necessarily seen as immoral, an immoral act. But then there's also this issue of, of masking bribes, where the bribe falls within kind of a gray area in terms of, you know, morality. So where do other practices fall in, like actual gift giving, 
which you state, you know, people did give gifts to say doctors and things like this to, to thank them for their services. And also the issue of blot. How, how do these fall into the range of, on the one hand, on one extreme, the giving someone money for a service, uh, a corrupt service, versus giving someone on the other extreme, say, a genuine gift, and then also using one's connections through blot? Well, blot is a really important question. Some historians have written about blot. The first was Joseph Berliner who wrote a wonderful article called Blot is Higher Than Stalin. And he was interested in Blot in, in, among managers in industry. And he wrote based on the Harvard Interview Project, which was conducted in the early 50s. And it was refugees who came to the U.S., Soviet refugees who came to the U.S. and Germany and were interviewed by Harvard and U.S. Army specialists on the Soviet Union. And Sheila Fitzpatrick has written an article about Blot in the 1930s. The best sort of specialist on Blot, in contemporary period is Alena Legenova, who wrote about Blot during Perestroika. Now, my book is not about Blot, and Blot and bribery are sometimes conflated, but Soviet people know the difference between the two and, are, and knew the difference between the two and really felt the difference very strongly. So Blot, which has no, you know, the word has no equivalent in English, really means a kind of reciprocal exchange of favors among acquaintances or friends. So it's a sort of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And it's based on a relationship among people who know each other over time. It's a typically blot is done by people who have an ongoing long-term relationship. It's not a one-time thing like bribery is. Very often bribery is, is really best to do with somebody who you don't know, a kind of one-off thing. Blot is also not against the law. And bribery is against the law. Bribery, bribery is an exchange of valuables to pervert the judgment of an official in violation of the public trust. It's prosecutable. And it's, it also involves, it has to involve quid pro quo, which of course is difficult to prove. It was difficult to prove in Russia. It's difficult to prove in Washington, D.C. And you know, bribery is a hard crime to demonstrate. But blot relations are really important, obviously, and blot helped people get done and cope and survive. But blot also implies that you have a friend or an acquaintance in a position to do something for you, and then you have to be able to do something for them as well. So if you don't have a blot connection, then people would often have to resort to something else. So for example, I might have a great friend who works in the university who can help my child get into the university. And I work at a shoe store, so I'll get them some nice shoes. But even in that case, I may not have a friend in the courts if somebody in my family gets in trouble. So at that point, blot wouldn't work. You'd have to move to bribery. I think blot, as Legendova shows, a blot is considered to be sort of, to be thought of positively and to evoke warm associations with, for people, while bribery is considered to be shameful. Now, as I demonstrate in my book, or as I argue in my book, when I look back in the late Stalin period, many people believe that taking a bribe was wrong. And most people did. And you see that there's a lot of condemnation, social condemnation and stigma to taking a bribe. It is very difficult to find people who will admit to taking a bribe unless the evidence is right in front of their faces and they're sort of in court. 
But a lot of people will admit to giving bribes, and what they'll say is that they had no choice, that they were extorted by the official, they'll often say, or that life circumstances were such that they had no other opportunity. And you often see people even giving a bribe and then reporting it to the police if the bribe taker did not give them what they wanted. Right, right, because it's kind of a social contract in a way, right? Exactly. So, yeah, there are sort of complex feelings towards bribery, both giving and taking. And you'll even see it among judges. Judges will be much less likely to harshly punish a bribe giver than to punish the bribe taker, which is sort of interesting because, of course, it's the same act, right? It's, it's a deal. But even Soviet law has distinctions between giving a bribe and taking a bribe. There are different articles of the criminal code. Criminal code is designed in 1926, and that is still the code that's followed in the 40s and 50s. And the criminal code of the 20s, which was designed during NEP, the idea was that the bribe givers are the capitalists. So these are NEP men and kulaks who are giving bribes to good, innocent, naive Soviet officials who come from the working class. So giving bribes is actually punished more harshly than taking bribes. By the post-war period, in most cases, bribe givers were actually punished less harshly by judges than bribe takers. Let me ask you something also about, because Ledineva talks about how corruption and bribery also filled this space left by the state itself because of Russia's poor governance. And therefore, bribery had this almost positive effect because it it allowed for the state machinery to move when it otherwise wouldn't move. So it became kind of a necessary component to the form of governance in, say, you know, post-Soviet Russia. Do you find something similar in the late Stalin period? Yes, I do. Bribery is a lubricant to a system that doesn't work very well at all, not just in civilian administration, but perhaps more importantly in economic administration, where the economy certainly would not have been able to function had it not been for these informal relationships that develop between, say, factory directors, suppliers, distributors, the retail chains. And I mean, it was acknowledged by the regime in one way or another that this was the case. And so you see, for example, in the documents, you'll see in the 40s and 50s, cases of factory managers who are wheeling and dealing and trading, you know, rubber for ball bearings between factories. And unless somebody is actually pocketing money, which is normally not the case, then the state looks the other way. And they even have an expression for it. They call it in the interest of production. So dealing in the interest of production, meaning that this isn't a sort of mercenary, self-enriching activity. It's an activity to help the wheels of industry turn. By the 60s, and my next project is actually working on the social history of black markets in the 1960s and 70s, so that I've started research on that. By the 1960s, I mean, you see that what was being done in an ad hoc sort of emergency basis in the Stalin years has become permanent full-time in the, in the post-Stalin period. That is that you have people whose entire jobs are, as these blotmeisters, as they're called, making deals 
between factories, among in distribution networks, that it really becomes completely institutionalized in a way that you don't see yet in the Stalin period. Mm, that's fascinating because it also reminds me of the fact that the people, some of the people who, when the system breaks down in the in the 1990s and, and the distribution networks and the economy breaks down, it's these people that actually profit the most from the new economy because because they're the they're the the vital link in the chain and are able to make a lot of money as brokers between industries. Yes. I mean I I often say that in 1991 the Russia legalized the black market and that you know that became the mar- these became markets and so you had what you're describing. Of course there's also large influx of of professional criminals at the same time who are protecting these markets. Now you devoted in, in well, let me let me ask you this question first. So you you spoke a bit about the the government's effort to stamp out bribery, um, and and at, you rightly state, and and most people who know Russia are familiar with that a lot of these campaigns were mostly just on paper. Uh, though they they would crack down in some areas, but they they weren't full fledged campaigns. And one of the reasons. Why people say is because well the the offenders who are there to stamp out bribery are the ones who the very ones who are inculcated within the bribery system so so talk about this problem, but also talk about in relation to the the campaigns against bribery the role of informants because as we also know that there is a vast network of informants in, employed by the police in Soviet Russia, so how did these two mesh together in trying to combat bribery? Well, officially, after the war, bribery was on the verge of extinction. Bribery was supposed to have all but been wiped out before the war. According to official ideology, and this ideology persists after Stalin's death, the corruption that you saw in the 40s and 50s were just the last sort of dying remnants of a capitalist mentality that existed in the minds of a few bad apples. So it's basically a bad apple strategy. And this is one of the first flaws and major flaws of the Soviet anti-corruption campaigns. They would never talk about the kind of systematic problems that we're talking about. Rather, socialism meant the absence of crime eventually. And we were getting there. It might take us a little bit longer than we expected, but it was on the verge of complete eradication. So this means that you're going to focus on individual bad apples. And if you look at the newspaper coverage, you'll see that there are just you know, a few people here and there who are still thinking along these capitalist lines. They still have a little bit of the flavor of the exploiter in them that they haven't yet shaken. Maybe they can be redeemed through labor in a prison. Uh, maybe they can't. You'll also see after the war, you know, an example of this, there is a media campaign as well. And the media campaign really only lasts for a few months um, before it disappears. It's very interesting um, why it disappears, but there are a few campaigns and there are a few cartoons in Crocodile, for example. Mainly they're intended to highlight that both givers and takers of bribes will go to jail. So there's always a sort of a bribe giver, and then a bureaucrat, and they secretly sort of hand each other a little bit of cash, and they're looking around furtively, and then the police catch them, and then in the final panel, they're both in jail. 
And the moral of the story is don't think that giving bribes is not going to be punished because that is, I think, a common social perception. So you have this bad apples campaign, which is not particularly effective. So why are the campaigns against bribery not very diligently or enthusiastically carried out? And I found in the documentation of these campaigns some interesting insights. So, for example, the chairman of the Supreme Court, Galyakov, says, argues against a public campaign against bribery. What he says is that it's going to threaten the legitimacy of our legal agencies. So if people know that there's bribery, then they may start to ask, why does it still exist? And if there's a, a, a loud discussion in the newspapers about, for example, judges and prosecutors and police taking bribes, this could undermine, undermine faith in the system. The other thing that he says is that foreign governments will use this campaign against us. So he means the United States, but he also means Europe. And this, of course, the Cold War has just been launched, and this is part of that a concern that it will be used as propaganda by, uh, by our enemies. So after 1946, until Stalin's death, there's almost no discussion of uh, bribery as a serious social problem or serious political problem, a problem of government in the Soviet Union. So I think that historians are familiar with, are more familiar with the informant network that exists in the Soviet Union that is aimed towards sort of denunciations and rooting out potential political opposition. But before this study, there really has not been a study of an informant network that exists and that is really huge, that's devoted to rooting out economic crime and corruption. In this is within the MVD, uh, within the GUM, which is the police, the National Police Force, it's created in 1937. It basically falls apart completely during World War II, so it's down to about 40,000 people. But by 1941, it's over 400,000 people in this network. And these are citizen informants. These are sort of average citizens. They were recruited for various reasons. One is they often got in trouble with the, with the police, and they were told that if they became an informant and uh, told the police, met with the police regularly, and told the police about any kind of criminal activity that they saw at the workplace in particular or on the farm, then they would not be punished. There were others who volunteered for this to be informants, and the police would approach people in certain positions, for example, bookkeepers who were sort of the, the nerve center of a lot of workplaces, also de journée, that is the women who were um, sat in in office buildings and in apartment buildings on the first floor, checking who came in and out. They often were well-located or well-placed to hear gossip and to hear rumors and things like that that they could report to the police. Uh, sometimes students were also recruited. You know, there's all kinds of paradoxes with this type of thing. This means that the Soviet government is dependent on a large network of its own citizens to report on the illegal activities of its own bureaucracy. And... That's, you know, it's a kind of flawed proposition. The state understood that it was difficult to find evidence about criminal activity. And often the best evidence is a kind of eyewitness account, especially for bribery. Informants were, in theory, very useful because, again, the bribe is a deal between two people. 
Usually, sometimes there's a third person, an intermediary, but this is all done behind closed doors. With a murder, there's a body. If you steal somebody's stereo, then there's going to be something missing. Or if somebody embezzles from work, there's often like an auditor can root that out. But for something like bribery and for a lot of theft of state property, there's simply no witnesses and no way of finding out who did it. So you need some sort of eyewitness or somebody who hears rumors, who has their ear to the ground. Defending state property, after, especially after World War II, is a leading priority for the Stalinist regime. And, and finally, what does the presence and persistence of bribery in, in these many forms that you've discussed uh, and corruption in generally that, that comes with it uh, say about the Soviet system and, and Russia more generally? Well, in part, it points to the notion that the Soviet system has these self-destructive elements. So the system needs corruption to exist and needs corruption to flourish. Yet the campaigns to root out corruption are very ineffective, in part for the reasons that we mentioned earlier. The people who are responsible for removing it, and that would be prosecutors, police, in some cases judges, are often themselves uh, corrupt. The economy is dependent on wheeling and dealing, unofficial, informal, behind-the-scenes operations to keep the system moving, but it's highly wasteful and highly inefficient. It also shows the importance of informal relationships in a dictatorship. And, and despite repression, and often because of repression, uh, bribery and other informal relationships flourish as a kind of self-defense mechanism or for survival mechanism. To me, my study, the court cases I saw, illustrate to me the vibrancy of everyday life in the Soviet Union, even in the Stalin period. Again, despite repression, you have this, these creative, this creativity. The desperation often leads to creative acts that is um, embodied often in personal relationships, in personal dealing. That was James Heinzen, a professor of history at Rowan University, where he specializes in modern Russian history. His new book is The Art of the Bribe, Corruption Under Stalin, 1943-1953, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!
take my tears and that's not nearly I don't pray that way 